You know, if you read the prophets, it is clear and unmistakable that things will get worse before they get better. Things will get worse in the world before they get better. I know that's not exactly what you wanted to hear this morning, and trust me, it wasn't popular when the prophets said it either, but the fact of the matter is it's true. That it will get darker just before the dawn. That it will be hell on earth before the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. And you understand that's not being pessimistic. That's being biblically realistic. This, this is what God has revealed. Even more than that, this is what God has ordained and decreed to take place. And this perfectly matches up with what we see, doesn't it? Things are getting worse. Things have been getting worse. And things will continue to get worse until it finally culminates in the sadistic reign of the Antichrist who will demand that people bow down in worship and allegiance to him. Mark of the beast kind of stuff. I believe all that. And so the philosophy of history of the prophets is clear and unmistakable. Things will get worse before they get better. And yet having said that, having said that, things will get better. They will. Not on their own, of course. Not through political renewal. Not through education. Not through legislation, not through activism, not through boycotting, not through riots, not through protest or military intervention, not through nuclear holocaust or war. But when King Jesus arrives to the planet and takes back the world that rightfully belongs to him and on the planet, he will establish an invincible sovereign empire and rule the nations from a throne in Jerusalem. That'll change things. That'll be the dawning of a new and better age. That is the silver lining of hope that gleams on the clouds of darkness and despair. And you see, that simple paradigm of things getting worse before they get better, that's exactly what Isaiah unfolds in our text this morning. In fact, Isaiah takes two chapters, totally opposite in every way, and yet that's by design. Chapter 34 is the wrath of God that will break upon the world. Chapter 35 is the kingdom of God that will break into the world. Both chapters are future. Both chapters are literal. Both chapters are real, and both reveal that God is in absolute sovereign control over all of human history. So listen carefully, what these two chapters, the ones that Teague just read, which I know what that sounded like to you, and the things that you're about to hear, what those chapters are, are the complementary chronological display of end times events and what God has planned for the end of the age. And what God has planned is to rip apart the world in the terrors of his wrath and then restore the world in the triumphs of his grace. Which means it will get worse before it gets better. And you understand that this is eschatology. This is end times theology. And, and you realize the entire reason why Isaiah gives his people eschatology again 
and again and again is precisely because that's what you give people in a crisis. And you know the people of Judah, they were in a crisis. A crisis so deadly, so threatening, that it had the potential to wipe them off the face of the planet. And it was the beast of Assyria blowing up the Middle East, taking over absolutely everything. And it was just a matter of days, days maybe, before they surrounded the city of Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers. And so, needless to say, unless God intervenes, this is not going well for the people of Judah. And yet that's exactly the point. Eschatology is for crisis. Eschatology is for catastrophe. You need the end times in crazy times. When danger is high, when courage is low, when fragile faith hangs by a slender thread, which is really time for us because we, timely for us because we also live in crazy times, don't we? Danger is high for the church. Courage is low for the church. Doctrinal compromise and apostasy is everywhere creeping into the church. Brutal assault and persecution is coming for the church. And yet you have to understand, beloved, those who know and love eschatology have the courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture. Those who know and love eschatology have their hearts reinforced with bulletproof steel. Those who know and love eschatology know they have nothing to lose and everything to gain in living radical lives for Jesus Christ because they know that no matter what they lose or must suffer, God wins it all in the end. So here we go. God will detonate the world, then renovate the world. That's our text. This morning, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see four transformative effects. Four transformative effects unleashed in our lives by the future vengeance and victory of Yahweh to come. That's in your notes if you've got them. Four transformative effects unleashed in our lives by the future vengeance and victory of Yahweh to come. And this oracle sermon comes in two parts. Part one, I call this swords of blood and rivers of fire. The day of Yahweh's vengeance. Swords of blood and rivers of fire. The day of Yahweh's vengeance. In other words, here's where it gets worse before it gets better. You have to understand that chapter 34, with all of its strange-sounding poetic devices, is a prophetic display of the future demolition of the entire planet. That's chapter 34, otherwise known as the Great Tribulation. And here's the thing about the Great Tribulation. It was not invented by the Left Behind series or by dispensationalists because Christ himself called it that in Matthew 24, 21. And what it is is a stage in the plan of God's plan of redemption when God finally responds to the centuries of atrocity and arrogance of man who thought that they could make God go away and simply not exist with pretend. That if they could make God feel unwanted enough and hated enough, that he would simply leave them alone and never come back, failing to remember, of course, that we don't call the shots, he calls the shots. 
We don't make the rules. He makes the rules. God is not the one accountable to us. We are the ones accountable to him. And when God intervenes on the day of his wrath, mark my words, the world will be fire and blood. A time of chaos and shattered dreams a wasted land, the world will crumble, cities will explode, all of the apocalyptic nightmares that Hollywood tried to capture with their CGI movie magic will be real. But worse, when the tribulation devastation is exactly what we see in chapter 34, it begins with a bang in part one. You can see it in your notes, which I'm calling the slaughter to come. The slaughter to come, look at the text, verses one through four. Draw near, O nations, to hear. And O peoples, listen carefully. Let the world and its fullness hear, the world and all of its inhabitants. For Yahweh has rage against all the nations and wrath against all their population. Another way to render this, I know this is different from your Bible. You could say, he will utterly destroy them. He will give them to the slaughter. Their slain shall be thrown down, the stench of their corpses shall rise, and the mountains literally will dissolve in their blood. All of the host of heavens will dwindle away, and the sky will be split like the scroll, and all of their host will fall like the falling of a leaf from a vine, like the falling of a fig tree. Now right there is classic, vintage, apocalyptic literature. That's how the prophets talked when they described what the end of the world was going to be like. And you could totally tell that we're talking about massive destruction here. And yet you can see, you could totally tell that this is not destruction limited or localized to Israel or the Middle East, but rather notice this is global, worldwide, planetary destruction, and it will be Yahweh himself who brings it. Notice there in verse one, Isaiah summons not just a Jewish audience, but the audience of the world. This is a public service announcement applicable to every single person on the face of the planet, still as relevant today as the day it was written. Verse 1, draw near, O nations, to hear. And O peoples, listen carefully. Let the earth, the world, and all of its fullness hear the world and all of its inhabitants. Better listen up, world. Secular, God-ignoring, truth-suppressing world. Give your undivided attention to the ancient prophet because he has some news that you might find especially pertinent to your lives and to your eternities. Why? Look at verses 2 and 3. For Yahweh has rage against all the nations and wrath against all of their host. He will utterly destroy them. He will give them to the slaughter. Their slain shall be thrown down and the stench of their corpses shall rise. That's one way to begin a sermon. And that's the way you must begin a sermon when the stakes are just too high to play around. There's no room for snowflakes when you're talking about the wrath of God. 
There's no such thing as a safe space when you are going to endure the wrath and fury of the living God. And notice in verse 2 the parallels. Rage against the nations is equivalent and parallel with wrath against their populations. And that word wrath literally means heat. A consuming heat that melts and scorches its victims. And notice in verse 2 how this is going to go down for the nations. Isaiah says that Yahweh has, or rather, will utterly destroy them. He will give them to the slaughter. That word utterly destroy, cherem in Hebrew, that is a ghastly word. That is the very same word used in the book of Joshua to describe the wiping out of Canaanite nations off the face of the planet, which means what this is is nothing less than a global holocaust against all the nations at the hand of God. This is real. This is right. This is just. This is certain. And it is inevitable. And there is still time to do two things. One, to repent and flee the wrath to come, and two, to warn other people about this. Because you realize, I hope, that this is not the sadistic rage of a monster God, but the holy rage of a righteous God who has for centuries and centuries endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is a God who at this very moment is lavishing on the people who hate him countless acts of his kindness and glimpses of his mercy. And it is only right that Yahweh does this in the future and great unequilibrium imbalance exists until he does. Verse verse 3 portrays the Gruesome outcome of bodies and corpses slain upon the ground. And there will be so much death in the tribulation that Ezekiel 39 tells us that when it's all over, it'll take seven months to bury the bodies. I'm not saying you have to enjoy the brutality. And we don't enjoy the brutality, but we accept this as reality and we accept this as an inevitability and the just and right penalty. I mean, if this seems over the top and an overreaction to you, then you neither understand the majesty of God, nor do you understand what a heinous thing sin against the Almighty actually is. It's a wonder it hasn't happened already. In verse 4, notice even the heavens themselves get shaken. All the host of heaven literally will dwindle away and the sky will be split like a scroll all of their host stars will fall like the falling of a leaf from a vine like the falling of a fig tree you you see what this is don't you stars collapsing sky splitting meteors falling like acorns off a tree this is literally the decreation of the universe as Yahweh rips the whole thing apart in the judgment of his wrath it will literally be a cosmological and meteorological meltdown and destruction everything in the cosmos will feel the crushing weight of the power and wrath And you can totally tell, can't you? 
how this kind of message and this kind of theology is designed to do two things in our souls. One, to keep us from getting a little too attached to the world in its current condition. And two, to make us look forward to the new world coming in the age to come when Jesus Christ returns, which is chapter 35. We're getting there. But that brings us to part two. Part two, which I'm calling the sword of blood. The sword of blood, look at verses five through seven. This is Yahweh speaking. And I think you could render it this way. When, not for, but when my sword drinks its fill in the heavens, behold, it will come down upon Edom and on the people I have dedicated to destruction for the cause of justice. Yahweh has a sword filled with blood. It will drip with fat from the blood of rams and goats from the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Botsrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Their wild oxen will go down with them. The bulls with their, this is people here, mighty men. And their land will drink their fill of blood and the dust will be greasy with fat. I know that's graphic and bloody, but Isaiah makes no apologies for it, and we should not be embarrassed to read it, and I want you to notice that Yahweh describes a sword, a sword of execution not made with steel and fire and with the hands of men, but a sword as a picture of his furious anger, and notice how Yahweh describes his sword in monstrous terms, as if it has teeth and a mouth that consumes and, and devours its victims. And after his sword drinks its fill in the heavens, verse 4, the sword returns to devour the earth. And notice the particular object of his destruction there in verse 5. When my sword drinks its fill in the heavens, behold, it will come down upon Edom and on the people I have dedicated for destruction. Edom, the Edomites. You've heard of them, haven't you? Descendants of Esau. And they were a particularly wicked, apostate people who had always been a particularly thorny people for the people of Israel. And Edom today is modern-day Jordan. Very close and hostile Muslim neighbors to the east of Israel who would like nothing better than to wipe them off the face of the planet. And we know that because they said that. And Yahweh picks on them here, not because they are worse than other nations, but because they are representative of the kind of slaughter that Yahweh will bring to all of the nations. And the Bible does say much about Edom and their future, and it is not a happy ending. In fact, the entire book of Obadiah is devoted entirely to the destruction of the Edomites. And a little sample will do. Obadiah writes about and to the Edomites. Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest high among the stars, from there I will bring you down, O Edom. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. For the day of the Lord draws near, notice, on all the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. And they 
the Edomites will become as if they had never existed so that there will be no survivor among the house of Esau. I don't make the rules, I just report the facts. And the wiping out of the Edomites is exactly Isaiah's point. And notice the end of verse 5, Yahweh makes sure that everybody knows that this will be for the cause of justice. Lest anyone get the idea that this is cruel or unfair or unjust or wrong for God to destroy the Edomites or any other unrepentant nation for that matter. Yahweh makes clear that this is exactly what justice demands. And the verses 6 and 7, so gruesome. So gruesome, using sacrificial language, slaughter of animals to make, a, to make a bloody point. Isaiah describes the brutal fate that awaits the nation of Edom and, and all such nations who resist his grace and refuse to repent. It's hard to read it again. Yahweh has a sword filled with blood. It will drip with fat from the blood of rams and goats from the fat of the kidneys of rams for Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bozrah, that's the capital of Edom and a great slaughter in the land of Edom and their wild oxen will go down with them, their bulls with their mighty men and their land will drink its fill of blood and literally the dirt will be greasy from fat in other words everything will die Beasts, man, and their bile and, and blood on the ground, and, and it's gross and, and it's horrifying, but it does pack a punch, doesn't it? And the point is, the point is, when God finally breaks the silence and brings his wrath upon Edom and all of the nations, it will be thorough, it will be severe, and no one will escape. You understand, beloved, the time will come when the streams of God's mercy will run dry. When the window of grace and the door of mercy will begin to close and it will be too late for people to accept the offer of salvation in the sun. But it is not too late yet. Which is exactly why missions and evangelism exists. To save as many people as possible with the gospel and get them into the kingdom. So church, can you hear it? Can you hear the sound? The sword of the Lord is being sharpened even at this very moment. Can you look into the eyes of those poor, unbelieving souls and know that this or hell or both awaits them and say nothing and feel nothing. You know what they need. You know what can save them. Who can save them? And it is the Lord of glory, the Prince of Calvary, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God, slain for sinners, who at this very moment stands at the right hand of the Father, willing to dispense mercy and grace to all who come in repentance and faith. Which brings us to the third part 
of the future, which I call the scorching of the earth, the scorching of the earth. And I know that there's not much more of this that we can take. I understand that. And yet again, Isaiah doesn't apologize. Yahweh certainly does not apologize. And having seen the destruction of people in verses 1 through 7, we now see the destruction of the earth itself. The ESV fiddles with this a little bit, and they credit all of this describing the destruction of Edom, but it's not. It's actually the, the destruction of Zion in the future, and by extension, all of the earth. Here is where it gets worse for Israel before it gets better for Israel. Verse 8 sets the scene. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense to contend for the cause of Zion. Notice Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense, that he will contend for Zion. But the point is, there's all of these things that has to happen first before he does so. And that's what Yahweh describes. Look at verse 9. What will happen to Zion? What will happen to the great city of God? It says, their rivers will turn into pitch, their dust into brimstone. Their land will become burning pitch. Not literally, of course, but it's almost as if the, the rivers are made of gasoline and the, and the dirt is made of gunpowder. Meaning the city of Zion will explode and go up in flames. And it'll be so bad, verse 10, that the fire cannot be extinguished and the city will lie in ruins. Verse 11. But most of the people killed off or fled from the city because Revelation 12 does say that the Jews will be in hiding in that day. The city will become a ghost town. The city once bustling with people filled with commerce, filled with activity, will be, uh, will be as silent as the grave and filled with desert creatures who wander the streets. Look at the end of verse 11 and see if it sounds familiar. He, that is Yahweh, notice, will stretch out over the city, literally, the line of formlessness and the plumb line of destruction, literally, void formless and void. Does that sound familiar? The exact same words in Genesis 1, 2, what the planet looked like before God created anything on it. And the point is in the tribulation desolation, the earth will look like that once again, leveled to the ground. And you know that a nation has hit rock bottom when there was no one to lead them. When there was no king in the land, judges tell us, that is a fate worse than death. And that's exactly what verse 12 describes. And notice that there's, there's no king. There will be no kingdom. Everything will be in disarray, in chaos, and destruction. No shape, no people, no leaders, no buildings, no citizens, no king. All of it will be gone. And it will look like for Israel that everything Moses had ever dreamed for his people will have disappeared like vapor in the wind. And then Isaiah returns in verses 13 through 15 to the dreary conditions and desolations of Zion in the future, which by extension will reflect what the whole earth will look like. And, and, and verse 13, you see the palaces and fortresses and buildings and businesses wild and overgrown with weeds and thorns. And then all the way through the end of verse 15, Isaiah describes, again, the, the nasty, dreadful creatures that will overrun the city and lurk in the shadows. That's, that's a favorite image of the prophets to describe curse and destruction. You know that a place has hit rock bottom when there are no more people there, only wild animals 
roaming the streets, that's what that is. And should some skeptic sneer at Isaiah and react to Isaiah's writing and, and write it off as, as tin foil hat conspiracy theorist nonsense and paranoia and say, oh, really, Isaiah? That's a bit extreme, don't you think? How do we know that this is going to go down in the way you say? Notice Isaiah's response in verse 17. Seek from the scroll of Yahweh and read. What is he talking about? What's the scroll of Yahweh? What is he talking about? He means Bible. He means scripture. I think he's talking about previous revelation that came before him, Moses and the Psalms and other prophets. And I think his point is very simple. You read what I'm saying, and I'm not saying anything that no one else has already said. This is coming, and it's confirmed even by Moses. That's so a church, there it is. It's not what you asked for. That's what God ordained for you to hear this morning. That is a glimpse of the desolation of creation coming in the tribulation. And I think it raises a very important question, doesn't it? So what? So what? To, what does any of this matter? I don't know there's debate about this. Especially since I, I believe that the church will be supernaturally extracted off the planet in a great event in the future called the rapture. You don't have to believe that. That's fine. I'm convinced that it's biblical, but the question is, I mean, seriously, why does this matter? With marriages on the line? With conflict in the home? With bills you can't pay? Ends you can't meet? Kids or grandkids walking away from the faith? Alcohol or pills beginning to gain the upper hand? Crippling loneliness, unfulfilled desires, spiritual depression that gnaws at the soul, not to mention a culture on the brink of a meltdown. What does anything in chapter 34 have to do with my life? It has everything to do with our lives. Not because we'll physically be there to experience it, but because it reminds us to do three things. Number one, the tribulation desolation reminds us to tremble, to tremble. What I mean is, it should be my bile and blood spilled by the sword of Yahweh. It should be me as the object of his execution. I am the one that should be the object of his wrath and of his terrible sovereign fury, but it won't be me. And it won't be you if you belong to Christ. Why? Because every single ounce of that wrath has already been absorbed and taken by the Son of God. Number two, what the tribulation, desolation offers us is joy. Joy. The tribulation offers us joy and even a sigh of relief that things will not always be as they are now. It's okay to rejoice in that. 
It's not psychotic or sociopathic to long for the wrath and judgment of God to break upon the world so long as we remember that we too should be the object of that wrath and that we remember that God's judgment is not some divine hissy fit or Trinitarian temper tantrum, but the public display of his holiness and the vindication of his glory. Number three, what this offers us, you can totally tell, the vengeance and gloom of Isaiah chapter 34 is the perfect setup for the victory and glory to come in chapter 35, which is exactly where we're going, which brings us to part two. Part two of the vision, all in chapter 35, which I'm calling holy highways and streams in the desert, the day of Yahweh's victory. The day of Yahweh's victory, because here it is. Here it is. Here is where it gets better after it gets worse. And when I say better, I don't mean merely better than we have it now. I mean best. I mean ideal. I mean curse reversed, Eden returned, paradise regained, and the recovery of the very kingdom lost by Adam restored upon the earth. You understand, this is not merely what we would like to see happen. It is what is going to happen. So here it is, a foretaste of the future, a paradise, a preview of paradise, a captivating portrayal of your future kingdom home, starting in verse 1. Let's read the whole chapter. Let's get a feel for this. Here it is. This is what's coming in the future after chapter 34. The wilderness and the waterless region shall rejoice. And the desert will shout for joy. And it will bloom like the crocus. It will surely bloom. It will rejoice also with joy and a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon will be given to it. They, we, will see the glory of Yahweh and the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Give strength to the stumbling knees. Say to the dismayed of heart, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God comes with vengeance. The reward of God is coming and he will save you. And the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like the deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Why? Because the waters will split the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. And the scorched earth will become pools. And the thirsty ground will become springs of water in the abode of the jackal. And the grass will become reeds and papyrus. And there will be a freeway and a road, and it will be called the highway of holiness, and the unclean will not pass by upon it, and the fool will not wander upon it, and the lion and the ravenous beast will not come upon it, but the redeemed will go there, and the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come to Zion with a shout of joy, and eternal joy shall break upon their heads. 
rejoicing and joy shall overtake them and sorrow and groaning will flee. And there it is. The better after it gets worse. The way better, which you understand this really isn't fair of Isaiah to do. What I mean is Isaiah, you can't just cut from gloom to glory. You can't just cut from the tribulation in chapter 34 to the restoration in chapter 35 without telling us what happened in between to make it become that way. What happened in the middle to make it change? And you understand Isaiah has already told us again and again, hasn't he? Of how and, and who will bring about the great restoration and recreation at the end of history. And it is none other than the virgin-born, spirit-anointed, divine king from the line of David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Has not Isaiah told us again and again? Let's work backwards. Chapter 33, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Remember that? Chapter 32, a king will reign in righteousness. Chapter 11, a king will come and strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Chapter 9, a king will come and sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now and forevermore. Do you see? Isaiah is clear and the Bible is clear. We don't improve the conditions of the planet with our ingenuity and then usher in the kingdom through moral reform and legislation. No, the Lord himself will return and find the earth in the very conditions described in 34. And with his sovereign renovating power, he will bring the planet back to its pristine pre-fall paradise-like conditions. Because you noticed, didn't you? The words joy and rejoicing and shouts of joy occur nine times in chapter 35. You noticed the weeds and thorns of chapter 34 give way to flowers and fruit that bloom in the wilderness. Did you notice? Did you notice that the rivers of fire are replaced by streams of, in the desert? Did you notice that the piled bodies of those slain in judgment are replaced by the redeemed of Yahweh who shout for joy? My point is, chapter 35 is the opposite and the reversal of everything in chapter 34. Did you see it? Chapter 35 is the kingdom, your future kingdom home. Let's walk through this comes in three parts. Look first at the transformation of creation, verses 1 through 4. The transformation of creation. And notice the language. Let the wilderness and the waterless region shout for joy. The desert will shout for joy. It will bloom like the crocus. I mean, what is he talking about? Blooming and, and rejoicing of the wilderness. What is he saying? And I, I just want you to know, I take this absolutely literally. Absolutely, literally. This here in the text is the reversal of the curse of sin itself. It is the soothing of the groaning of creation because of the virus of sin that holds it in captivity. Verse 2, he repeats it. Notice, 
the desert will bloom and shout for joy. And notice the glory of Lebanon and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon will be given to it. And they, we meaning, will see the glory of Yahweh and the splendor of our God. What is he talking about? Carmel? Sharon? What is he saying? You might remember that Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon in Isaiah's day were the as close to paradise as you could come. Those were the vacation destinations of the ancient world. And Isaiah's point is simply to say that in the day of the great king, when he extracts the curse of sin from the planet, that all of the earth will look like those places. All of the earth will look like the Garden of Eden. And yet notice the end of the verse, when we see all this go down, we won't merely see the glory and splendor of the new creation. We will see the glory and splendor of God himself. And then notice what Isaiah immediately does in verses 3 and 4. This is so interesting. Isaiah interrupts his own exposition of what's going to happen, and he tells us how to apply it in the present. Look what he says. Strengthen the feeble hands. And give strength to the stumbling knees. Say to the dismayed of heart, be strong. Do not fear. Your God comes with vengeance. The reward of God will come and he will save you. Do you know what that is? Do you know what he's doing there? He's telling you how to apply what he just said. And how you apply what he just said is that you use it as material to encourage people's souls. And notice how he describes the people. People who are feeble of hands. People who are stumbling, wobbly of knees. Who is he describing? Who does that describe? That describes people of deep, deep discouragement so discouraged in fact that they don't have the strength to make a fist anymore so discouraged that they don't have the power to stand on their own two feet anymore have you been there are you there right now these are people discouraged by sin defeated by trials utterly depressed and disheartened and dejected, so dejected that their fragile faith hangs by a slender thread and their faith is just about to break. And my question for you is, what do you say to people like that? What do you say to them? How do you inject hope into the souls of dejected people? Do you say, well, God will never give you more than you can handle? Do you say, if God brings you to it, he will bring you through it? Do you say, where God closes a door, he opens a window? Do you say, let go and let God? Do you say, God helps those who help themselves? Never say any of those things to anyone ever. Instead, Isaiah tells us exactly what to say. Say to the dismayed of heart, be strong. Do not fear. Why? Because your God will come in vengeance. The reward of God is coming and he will save you. 
In other words, what do you give people discouraged of soul? You know what you give them? Eschatology. That's what you give them. That's exactly what you give them. Because when we are discouraged and our fragile faith hangs by a thread, we don't merely need some general sense that things are merely going to get better somehow. Rather, we need to see and envision with our very souls that God will come again with vengeance and reward to slaughter the wicked and save his people and that he will make all things right in the world. question for you is, do you know anyone of feeble hands and wobbly knees right now? Are you among those with feeble hands and wobbly knees? Are you dismayed of heart and filled with fear? Because Isaiah has provided the cure, and it is the future and what God has planned for the end of the age. For the sake of time, verses 5 and 6 describe the salvation of the nations. This is a global revival coming at the end of history. Verse 5 describes regeneration. Verse 6 describes the effects and results of that regeneration. In that day, after the wicked are removed, the planet will be filled with worshipers in every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And think about it this way, the nations who will be there worshiping in the kingdom will be there through the means and instrument of the church. The blind will see the beauty of their king. The deaf will hear the glory of his decrees. There will be leaping and shouting in the kingdom, not in riots or protest, but in worship and celebration of the king and his reign upon the earth. And then finally, finally, the restoration and celebration. You can see it in your notes, the restoration and celebration. Because notice, very interesting, the particular reason Isaiah gives for why people will rejoice in that day. What's the reason? The reason is because waters will split the wilderness. And rivers will be in the desert The scorched land will become a pool and and the waterless regions will become springs of water in the abode of the jackal. The grass will become reeds and papyrus. That sounds so strange. What is he saying? He's simply saying the deserts will become a tropical paradise. That's it. The whole planet will become the Garden of Eden. We know that because Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel 36 says that's going to happen. And then Simply Incredible, verses 8 through 10, describes the centrality of worship in Zion. And notice that there's a freeway, a literal eschatological superhighway heading straight to Zion for all the worshipers from all the nations upon which to travel to worship the king and rejoice in his splendor. And I think it's really interesting that we give names in America to iconic freeways, don't we? We do. Significant freeways because of the, the beauty of the journey and also the significance of the destination. There's the Pacific Coast Highway in California. There's the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina. There's the Turquoise Trail of New Mexico. There's Trail Ridge Road in Colorado. There's Going to the Sun Road in Montana. And in the kingdom restoration, there will also be a freeway. And Isaiah says that its name will be called the Highway of Holiness. And it makes perfect sense why it will be. Because it leads to the holy city. 
in which resides a holy mountain, on top of which is a holy temple, inside of which is a holy throne, upon which will sit the Holy One, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. This is literal, this is real. And if you belong to Christ, you will be there to enjoy it. My question is, my question is, will I see you in Zion? Will I see you on the highway of holiness? Because look, look at verse 10. The ransomed of Yahweh will return. They will come to Zion with a shout of joy. And eternal joy will be upon their heads. Rejoicing and joy will overtake them. Overtaken by joy. And groaning and sorrow will flee. Think about it, beloved. Every burden and ache and fear and sorrow and sin in your souls at this very moment will not be there when you are on the road to Zion. It will be gone. Will I see you there? Because I think it's really interesting that Isaiah 25, Luke 22, and Revelation 19 also describe, say that we will recline and dine at a table with all the redeemed from all the ages, and it will literally be everything we had been waiting for. Will I see you in Zion? Will I see you on the highway of holiness? Will I see you at the table dining with the redeemed from all the ages? Will you be there? Are you sure that you will be there? Because you know, you know, if you have any doubts, you know how to get your name on the list of the invited. Don't you? It is by the admission fee of the blood of the Lamb of God. Have you been purchased by the Lamb? Are you born again, beloved? Because there are still seats unclaimed and ready. There is still room, as it were, at the table for you to come and dine with the King and the redeemed from all the ages. So I beg you, do not be a fool. Hear the summons of the king to be saved, whose arms, at least for the time being, are open and ready to receive you. This has effects. This changes things. And with lightning speed, I give you four transforming effects. Number one, and they're all in your notes Number one, the glorious kingdom restoration at the end of the age, get this, unleashes in our lives fearless faith. What's going to happen in the future unleashes fearless faith in our souls today, a faith that despite what we see with our eyes now clings to the promises of God found in his word. Do you have this fearless faith? Because it comes through what God has revealed. Number two, the glorious kingdom at the end of the age unleashes in our lives radical hope. Radical hope. 
that sustains our souls with joy because we know that everything in our lives that is ugly and broken and painful and twisted and mutilated and shattered in the world and in our lives will be reversed and removed in the day of the great king. Do you have this radical hope? Number three. The glorious kingdom at the end of the age unleashes in our lives joyful generosity. Joyful generosity that is freed from greed and the magnet of materialism, knowing that everything we give or lose or give up or must sacrifice for the cause of the king will be restored 10,000 times over in the day when the king arrives. Do you have this joyful generosity or... Are you still entangled and ensnared by the things of the world? And number four, the glorious kingdom at the end of the age unleashes in our lives undaunted courage. Undaunted courage in the proclamation of the gospel. It has to. It just has to. Think about it. We know how the world is going to end. We know how the world is going to begin again. We are literally the only people on the planet with hope. We are the only people on the planet with answers. And the answer is the great high king who when he returns will make all things, all things be the way they ought to be. And it will be, and he will be everything we have been waiting for. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we understand that it will get worse before it gets better. And Lord... What it does say, what it does tell us is that not only do you know that this will happen, you have ordained that this will happen. Every moment of history, every moment of our, of our lives is under your jurisdiction and control. And oh Lord, I pray for us as your saints to have courage. Courage to not compromise. Courage to not give in. That we would have clarity in our, in our minds, that we would see, we would see through the deceptive nature of sin that we would see through the, the false narratives and, and, and the, and the fear-mongering of those who want to keep the church silent and ineffective. Oh, help us, Lord. Help our lives to be governed by the great realities that you have revealed in your word. Make us a stalwart people, a stout people, a strong people, not in of ourselves, but through what you have revealed and what's to come in the future. May our security and stability and strength and satisfaction and sufficiency be found in you and you alone. And in your son's name we pray.